In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Put on your armor, get ready for battle, and move forward. And and that's what, what really spoke to me in the process was it is a challenge. They, you know, it's a manly challenge. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute, salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. This is Jim Ramos, and I am here with my B fam, brother from another mother, Dale Culver. How you doing, my man? I'm doing good. Hey, Dale, I'm really excited about today's guest. Uh, this guy uh, spent his career in law enforcement. He was a, a SWAT guy. He was a chief of police, went back to school, got a PhD. He's written over 45 books. I'm really, really excited to get this guy on the show. Uh, but before we do that, do you have a hero story for us today? Yeah, I can jump right to the hero story. Uh, I just got an email today, and uh, I think you saw it as well, and it just basically says, you know, you, hey, you guys, check this out. Thank you so much. After our first week of marriage, uh, the husband asked his wife, <laughs> he said, what is my score? And uh, she says, I can't be sure, but I think it's something you guys are teaching. And so thank you for filling my man with goodness. We are loving marriage. Well, and we know that, you know, first week of marriage, it's pretty easy. Uh, you're, everything's going pretty awesome. Uh, you should be at least, except for unless you're Jim. Not you're my marriage. Take, you're ready to take her out. But uh, so cool to learn that, to be asking your wife to, so you know where you're at in your marriage. Hey, how are we rating, honey? I need to know. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I asked Shanna a week ago. I, I gave our marriage an eight. She gave it a seven and she said, we can do better. But that's what she said. So I said, all right. Yeah. Well, we're going on absolutely. 29 years of marriage. So I guess we could. So, hey, uh, make sure you guys that you head on over to menlarena.org. I've got my bathroom book up there. Uh, it is free for about a week uh, if you want to get the download. And that's going to be off the site forever. So you got about a week to do that. And Dale, uh, what do you got going on for a man word today? And I'm going to, I bet I yep. can guess it. <laughs> okay. It's because you're so vanilla. You're, I bet the word is obscurity. Oh, that's awesome. Nope. Because I'm oh, not vanilla. You got me. You yeah. are a vanilla. You are a vanilla latte, man. Uh, 
This is uh uh man favored. Oh, I, you went off the cover. Okay, talk me through. Yeah, favored. Well, you know, if people could see themselves the way God sees them, they would see that he is crazy about them. Um, you know, you, myself, Scott, we're all favored by God. And and he says, hey, you know what? You're my favorite creation. And he wants a relationship with us. And But too many times people listen to the voices in their heads that say, you're not enough. You suck. No one likes you. Give up. And these are all lies because you are favored. And man, if we could communicate that to people that in God's eyes, man, you are favored. You're awesome. Yeah. So, sorry. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to tell you that you suck all the time, Dale. Sorry. Uh, you know, I'll get over. Well, it, and but. so, so you did not have a chance to read this book. This is really a great book. And the title threw me off when I read the title favored, not forgotten. I was like, what is this about? But the title of this book when you, you realize that you're favored in the midst of obscurity, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when you walk through those dry seasons of life and you want to get discouraged, be encouraged because you're favored because you got a God who's walking you through it. So the favored, we tend to think of favored means I'm going to get more money, more influence, bigger <laughs> house. And that is not what it means. And so I'm really excited to dive into deep waters on this topic. We've never dealt with obscurity before, yet it's something that takes men out like anything out there. It's just it's just something that really does damage if a man does not understand why he's there and what is on the other side. So I want to bring on the author of this book, Favored Not Forgotten, my friend Scott Silveri. He's 55 years old, lives in Dallas, Texas. Now, Scott, as I shared earlier, worked 12 years as an undercover cop. 16 years as a SWAT commander and is a retired chief of police. And he'll probably share more of that story later. He now ministers to men struggling with trauma from past and personal pain, abuse and addictions. He's written over 45 books. His latest book just got released on November 3rd of this month, Favored Not Forgotten. And I'm really excited about this book. I want to dive into this. Scott, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. And Scott, if it's all right with you, you know, you've you've you you've been in SWAT, you've been a police chief, and so I think that you can handle. We're going to throw you into the fire zone with our rapid fire round. Let's do it. Okay, so what I've done, Scott, is maybe the most profound concept in your book has to do with understanding the cost of obscurity. So when we walk in this season of obscurity, there is a cost. And then, and you use this beautiful acrostic. I'm probably going to steal this from you and use it. And give. I'll give you credit for the first couple times, you know. But uh, can you walk us? I'm going to give you each word in the acrostic. And I want you to explain why these words are involved in the process of obscurity and crossing that bridge of obscurity. So I'm going to walk you through these four words and just let you tell us what these mean. So the first word in the acrostic is calling. Sure. Well, and you know, and, and every part of this is, is based on, on biblical examples as well, yes. but we do as you know, we believe that you move from glory to glory and, and, you know, we do what you guys were talking about marriage earlier. And a lot of times, even in marriage, you get to that plateau and you think we found peace and you, you equate peace with, with absence of chaos. And that's not peace. What you've done is plateaued, and on a plateau, you reach stagnation. So when, when we do, we move from glory to glory. 
that calling is part of that. So we may have come to a point in our life where we think, I've made it, I'm a man. But you're only at that certain level. And God, then God wants to pour new wine, but he needs new wine skin. So God, will make, he'll put that calling on your heart. Maybe it's to go into ministry or maybe it's to change jobs or, or, or find a spouse. So th- that's, that's a very important part of, of this entire season of obscurity, surviving the wilderness, is recognizing, understanding, and heeding the calling of God. Well, you know what's interesting, Scott? I think of Moses. I think of Jesus. Well, maybe not Jesus, but I think of some of these other guys like Moses. He went into the wilderness for 40 years in obscurity, and God didn't call him there. God didn't call him till the end of the season, even though he was in that season for 40 years. So that's right. that calling looks like different things, huh? You know, that's exactly right. And you know, when we think about Moses and his, and his wilderness season, we think of when he led the, uh, the, the slaves out of, out of Egypt. But, you know, what's, what's always forgotten is his first 40-year season of obscurity is after he's killed the Egyptians' uh, taskmaster. Yes. And basically what you said is he self-activated his anointing, right? He was trying to free the people based on his own might, on his own ability. And that came out in a, in a fit of rage. God didn't want to free the slaves through force and might. He wanted to, to through his mighty work. So you're exactly right. Moses, who really speaks to me in so many ways, is is that self-activating his anointing because he had the heart and all of us have the heart. Right. And yeah. and when we're in men's ministry, guys are like, hey, I want to minister to people. OK, well, I'm going to quit my job. And you start talking through and it's, they really want to quit their job because they're tired of their job and they're using the. They're using the launch pad of the Holy Spirit. So it's very important. And we talk about understanding your call and even testing the, the spirit. And uh, because God, God will vet it out, right? He won't leave you hanging on a thread wondering whether or not, like, is this you, God? He'll let you know if it's him or not. Yeah, I appreciate that, the calling. I think that's so important because a lot of times we aren't called. We're, we're, we're burnt out yeah. <laughs> or we've been <laughs> wounded. And so to really sift that out and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So so I appreciate that. The next word is obscurity. Obscurity. Well, let me tell you, that that was a big surprise. Do you know that old saying, no one was more surprised than me? So I was the chief of police. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to tell you, I was at the top of my game. I'd been, a, I'd been, I'd lived a, a life just unbelievable. And what I would say blessed in the carnal world. I mean, I was the chief of police. I was a college professor. Uh, I had my PhD. I was a consultant for the federal government. My city catered to me. I mean, catered. I'd just been given a four-year contract, a new contract as chief. I had four years left until a full 30-year pension. I mean, look, I had it made, made, I tell you. And God, at 50 years old, God said, hey, I I want you to retire. And I'm like, no, you don't understand pension math, God. And God's like, hey, bro, I want you to retire. And and look, I've been through it. I've been through the, I've been through it in my career, violent, violent career. And, and I've always wanted to get back up and go to work. But when I heard the calling and then I prayed about two weeks, I say pray, probably debated. And then, and then I woke up that morning and I said the words I've never said in my life. I told my wife, I don't want to go to work today. And I knew God had taken that desire out of my heart. He had hardened my heart towards a profession that I actually placed above God in the same way that the Pharaoh did to to Moses. And then I I walked in and I I gave my, my retirement papers. And I thought, you know what? I am so important on this earth 
and God's calling me to do something, like it's going to be so much bigger than what I'm doing now. I, w- I would like to say I was being altruistically sacrificial, but I was really trading up. Well, I'm going to tell you, when I retired and I took that shield off and my identity was grounded in who I was as a cop. And, and I went from being, I mean, I'm, look, I'm talking cater to. I had people to fix my plumbing. I had people to pick up food at night. Cater to. I was a king in my city and really across the country in law enforcement circles. And when I retired, no one knew who I was. No one cared who I was. I went from a restaurant, a table in every restaurant, to moving to Dallas. I couldn't get a booth at Chick-fil-A. And the, the, the obscurity that I stepped into I was not expecting it. And then, look, I fell into depression, despair. I put on 70 pounds in about a year. I was at what what flipped it for our marriage was I walked into the, and I told my wife, I said, Leah, I said, not if, but when I kill myself, I'm not going to leave a mess for you and the kids to find. And and my wife, you know, my Azir, she said, she's like, listen, we're going to get you help. And, And look, I've spent my whole career helping people. And during obscurity, I couldn't help myself. And what I came to understand was I started blaming myself. Like what I didn't hear God right. I was never called. Like, God, you forsook, you know, you've forsaken me. Like, why are you punishing me? But I didn't understand until I got into the wilderness that it was actually a blessing and that I needed to come into a season of obscurity because I needed to break off the old chains of of being the king of my city, being a, a chief of police, being the boss. And really what I thought, I thought God had called out a chief of police for the kingdom. He don't need a chief of police. He needed me. And at 50 years old, I had no idea who I was. And the only way for me to break those strongholds of, of just the, the ego and the attitude and, and the earthly you know, attachments was for him to walk me around to the backside of the desert where he could, he could show me who I was by breaking off who I used to be. And look, it was painful. I mean, obscurity is not fun, but it's like being in shape, right? I mean, you're not just going to wake up and be in shape and uh, you got to go to the gym. You got to press, you got to push, you got to struggle. And that's what obscurity is. Well, you know, it's interesting. You said something. I've been called two times. Uh, I've, I've received a calling two times. And the the most of my adult life, looking back and reflecting on your book, I spent 23 years in youth ministry, and I would call that a season of obscurity, mm-hmm. even though I was called to it. And what I, I don't know about you, but you, well, you, I do know about you because you said this: God removed the desire for you to be the police chief and go to work. I know for me personally, on both occasions, God removed the desire, and so people tend to think, "Well, if God's calling me, He's going to give me a desire." Well, He may also. Instead of giving you the desire, remove the desire. What 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 do you see between how these two play out? That that's a great distinction. I mean, we I always talk about strongholds, and you know you can never move forward as long as you're looking back. And and if there's nothing to look back upon, then by by default, and mostly because we're men and we're hard headed and stubborn, then we default <laughs> to what's next, right? And you know it's yeah. like if I can't find the restaurant I'm looking for, then I'm gonna go to the next one that I can find. So what you said is a great distinction because you know to a big degree we are motivated by by what we're what we want but it really what we don't understand is there's even a bigger motivator in getting away from where we were like like I go back yes. to fitness like like I was tired of I mean look I was a triathlete and I put on 70 pounds in my depression I didn't want to be I didn't want to be out of shape anymore 
but that still wasn't yeah. enough to get me to the gym to be in shape. So just what you said, sometimes God takes it away. Sometimes God puts that carrot on the stick. He's the master motivator. He knows what will oh, yeah. get us there. So whatever it takes to get us there. So, so uh, you, you, your first step in this obscurity process is calling. Your second step is actually going through this, this turmoil, this tumultuous time of obscurity where you put on 70 pounds, you were suicidal, you didn't know what to do next. But then, you know, life, as we transition, we get to that third stage. And will you walk us through this stage of stabilization or right. stabilize? And that, was, and that was really when when you started to catch traction. Really, when I noticed it, and one of the markers that, that uh, my pastor and I had identified was when you stop asking why. When you, number one, you understand that, that God did not forsake you, that he's never been closer to you, that he is actually making and remaking and remolding and renewing you. And to do that, he's got to be in direct connection with you. So when you start to come to that understanding, uh, when you stop asking why me, right? Uh, that poor me, woe is me, woe is me. You start to get that stabilization, that traction. And it's really when you start to see the first hints of light at the end of the tunnel, when you realize, oh, this is why that happened. Look, I under, I know, had I stayed in that job, I would have killed myself. Either either the high blood pressure, I had uh, 170 over 120. I'd go home at 2 o'clock in the afternoon oh, whoa. because my, my pupils were pulsating. The job was so stressful, and but I used to live on stress. And But either the stress would have killed me or I would have just killed my, my addictions, my obsession. Everything was getting to the point. My PTSD was so on the ragged edge. But you see, behind that shield, I could normalize abnormal behavior. Because I was the I was the chief, and it's like I'm not messed up. You're messed up, you know. I'm the chief. This is the way we're supposed to act. So that that lifestyle would would have would have exponentially increased or decreased until the point it would have done me in. So when I moved away through, when I heeded the calling, I went through obscurity, and then the stabilization process began. When when you really start, uh, when you start seeing those points of light, you start to understand. God didn't pull a fast one on me. He didn't pull the rug from out from under me. Uh, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And you start to catch traction in your life and you start to understand. And I'll tell you, during this point, forgiveness is a huge part of going through the healing process. Uh, you know, I, I had to heal, which God even revealed that during the obscurity part was about was about growing up in a I mean, a very dysfunctional home. I mean, physical abuse, sexual abuse, violence, unbelievable. Uh, my father was dominant. And, and, you know, I was 50 years old and I was still hurting from those past pains. So I had to learn to forgive. And then when you get to that stable, stable point, the stabilization, it's it's when you come to understand you've learned to forgive. And learning to forgive is when you stop speaking about the offenses people caused against you. So you're not in full stride, but you're but you're you're kind of starting to catch traction in the mud. No, I want to come back to that uh, topic of strongholds and forgiveness, but let's move into the fourth one, the fourth word in this process. I'm calling it a process because in your book. It seems that there are phases that you go through. And the final one after stabilizing is transformation. Walk us through that word. And that's exactly as, as, as the word implies. It is a transformational experience where I went from totally, you know, I put all my faith in who I was. My identity was in what I did. And I went through the entirety of the process to where I, I was chief of police and now I'm a son of God. 
And so that transformation process is when you've, so you think like the, uh, like the, when we were kids playing Donkey Kong and stuff, when the, when they would jump from, from level to level, and that would be that glory to glory. When you, when you've come to that point where you're, you're now ready to launch, you're ready to activate and, uh, and you're, you're really your new calling, your new assignment that God, that you first heard, uh, whether it was 40 years ago, like, like Moses or 40 days prior, like Jesus, it's you had the calling, you went through the process, you become stabilized in who you are and who you're becoming, and now you are who you who you were meant to be. And yeah, you know, it's absolutely. and it's a cyclical it's a cyclical process. I mean, like we talked about earlier with Moses, you know. I mean, we forget the first forty years, and but for us to cycle to always be better, right? To get stronger, you've got to throw more plates on the bar. So it is a continuing process. But once you understand that it's a process and it's not meant to punish you, but to prepare you for promotion, then then you're more welcome to go through the process without clinging on to those strongholds. Yeah, that's really powerful, man. And you, you said something that just t- tweaked me in a good way. I've looked at this. Uh, I've looked at these four these four um, phases of obscurity, mm-hmm. calling, obscurity, stabilize and transformation. I saw them as linear. You just said they're cyclical. And as soon as you said that, uh, it went ding. I went, yes, they are. Because as soon as you get to transformation, we are setting ourselves up now. It may take 20 years. It may take 30 years. It may never happen. But we're setting ourselves up for another round. Walk me through that. It's exactly what you said. And I'm so glad because, look, I have my co-author, my my personal pastor, Adam McCain. I was thinking in the linear because I'm like, I'm done with that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And, and then and Adam starts sharing because he's coming with 30 years of pastoral experience and he's been very sensitive to the process of, of the wilderness seasons. Actually, he's the one that that articulated the word obscurity when we first met. And I gave him a super thumbnail you know, sketch of who I was. And he laughs and he goes, oh, obscurity. And like, I didn't even know what the word meant. I thought he was making fun of me. And I'm thinking, I'm going to punch his pastor. You know, here we are in the front of the church. And he's like, bro, you're going through. And he's from Louisiana, too. You know, we just happen to connect. Yeah. And he said, no, you're going, you went through a season of obscurity. And as he kind of explained that in, in a cyclical manner, and it made sense. I mean, it, it totally changed my mindset, my appreciation. And it also made me realize that I'm not, you know, like that plateau, right? Like I'm, I'm here, I'm happy. There's no chaos in life. No, it's always going to transform from glory to glory, and it takes a process. Well, it's funny. I, I sat in years ago. I listened to a Catholic priest talk about spiritual growth, and he actually said, I always thought it was linear, and then you hear cyclical. He actually talked about it being helical. So it moved like a helix, circular and upwards, and never yeah, never yeah, meeting yeah. in the same spot. And so very powerful. So I want to go back to something you said. And I think this is really important for guys to understand this because when we're in the season of obscurity, we are usually wrestling with something and, and things surface because everything is raw and forgiveness is a massive part of going to the next level. How does, and guys just need to understand this. And and I don't want to go into this, wound or all this stuff but 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 we have to go through our past and say who have i been dragging around with me for the last 20 years i need to find freedom and i'm letting this guy drag behind me 
And usually it's the last person on the planet that you want to own you. Help us with this. Look, you're exactly right. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what made the distinction for me was when a spiritual mentor explained that, you know, that forgiveness, because what do men say, right? Look, and I, I, I minister to men. We have men's groups and they're like, you don't know what they did to me. If you knew who at that, you know, blah. And I'm like, hey, hey, man, forgiveness is not for them. Forgiveness is to free yourself from that who hurt you. And I said, so unless you want to be owned, you want to be played like a marionette puppet, you got to cut those strings, man. You got to cut yourself free. And when that, you can see that light bulb moment when they understand, oh, forgiveness is for me. That's the greatest gift I can give myself. Because men, we're, we're, we're typically, you know, they always ask the first question, right, is what's in it for me? We can share the gospel, and but they're thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. What's in it for me? So when, when we explain it in tangible terms, like you get the power to give yourself the greatest gift in, in forgiving, cutting yourself free. And then, you know, you explain to them, it's like, now it's a three part. It's like, you've got to free yourself from who hurt you. Then you've got to bless that person. And then once you release yourself, now you release God to come in and take vengeance. And of course, and everybody thinks it's going to be some kind of Old Testament smiting, you know, it's like, yeah, get him, God. It's like, well, what if he did that to you when you were, when you were set free from who you hurt? So it, I tell you, it, it did, it changed as, as great as salvation and the baptism in the Holy Spirit, learning the truth of forgiveness was one of, probably one of the three or four greatest truths um, in my life. And it, it absolutely changed everything about me. Well, I'll tell you what. We just need more Christians to read Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 37, and then actually do what it says. You know, someone once said, someone said it was Corey Tinboon. Somebody else said it was a Smead, last name Smead. To forgive is to set a prisoner free, only to realize that prisoner is you. That's right. And That's so, right. man, if, if, if so I th we got to dive deep into that and go, okay, where do I need to forgive a parent or a sibling? or a coach, or a teacher, or a pastor, or an employer, or an employee, because they're, we're dragging them around, and God wants us to be free. He wants right. us to be mo mo uh, mobile. And so, so that's why I really like your book. It, it helps us understand this. And then you guys are very open and vulnerable. Uh, your sexual, you know, your, you shared about your sexual abuse and physical abuse that you were abused. You shared that in the book. And I thought, well, that's, that's a ballsy move from a SWAT guy and a police chief. So really did appreciate that. Uh, I loved your book. I initially was confused by the title, Favored Not Forgotten. I think I unpacked it, but can you go back and say, okay, and explain to us the journey to that title? Right. Well, uh, you know, to be honest, it's a, uh, I, I, my nature is like you and I talked earlier uh, offline is, you know, something manly, something tough. And, and, and the reality is the book is for men and women. And, yeah. and then, you know, and then it is, I mean, like, well, you explained it beautifully. I mean, we are, we're favored. And when you're going through these wilderness seasons, I mean, you know, you think about Moses, right? I mean, Moses grew up in the palace. Moses was the best education, the best of everything. Yeah. And then, boom, he finds himself in Midian, but like, like as a sheep herder, a goat herder. And, and I mean, but he, what was, he's like, how did I wind up here? But he, he had no clue how favored he was. Even without understanding that one day he was going to encounter this burning bush and then his anointing would be activated, he is always favored. And it's like you said, we do. We want men 
to really understand that, you know what, you might lose that job. You might lose that relationship. You might lose your identity and who you were. Because men, you know, we put who we are based on what we do. And immediately you're like, man, God's punishing me. God's not punishing you. You are favored. And then I mean, I think we think about Jesus on the cross and that's where the, you know, the forgotten, you know, it's like, why have you, for, why have you forsaken me? That's the first thing we do, right? God, you did this to me. You, 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 if you love me, you wouldn't have lost this job. Or you wouldn't have taken my wife. And, 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 you know, and I really do. I think about Romans 8, 28 about, you know, God uses all things for good. It doesn't mean all things are good, but he will use all things for good. And that's really what, where the title really was impacted was we are favored and you're not forgotten. So I believe that that favored and the feeling of favored and the feeling of forgotten are probably two of the, the strongest visceral reactions that men experience. Because in favored, we can rejoice because we're victorious and that's where we like to be. And in forgotten, you know, I always tell people the worst thing you can do to a man is ignore him. Because we deal with respect. We speak the language of respect. And if you ignore someone or we feel like we've been forgotten, man, we open the door for Satan to come in and twist us in all kinds of ways. So that's really where the title came from, was that those matching, pairing, those two very visceral responses that we experience. Well, you know, Scott, the guys that listen to this podcast, our target is a guy 28 to 48, 50 who has kids in the home. That that guy is probably in a season of obscurity, like no other time of his life. And so I have not heard the word obscurity used very much. And I, it's, it's actually an obscure word. <laughs> and uh, I love the word. And it's really interesting when you look at the cover of your book and the title, I, I, you know, I could see the marketing to both genders, but when you open the book and read it, in my opinion, you are targeting men all the way. I mean, you have two men writing the book. The two men are sharing their their masculine journeys. Uh, it's written in masculine language, and I think there are a lot of guys reading the or listening to this podcast right now that really need to pick that book up and and really dive into it. And I want to dive into it right now because I think this is a key topic that guys need to listen to. On the very first page of your book, you wrote this. We agree the word obscurity is odd. It's never really used in a positive light. And without digging into the academic definitions, the word intuitively intuitively leaves us an uneasy stitch in your spirit. So how would you describe the word obscurity and why is that such a powerful word for us to understand? You know, and, and it is exactly what you said. The irony is that it is such an obscure word. And even so much so where my pastor said, Scott, what you went through was obscurity. I mean, I was yeah. really taken aback because I thought he was making light of what I'd gone through. And but the truth is, that's exactly what it is. You know, and so the word obscurity, when you talk, when you when you think about it, I mean intuitively, yeah, it gives you a gives you a stitch. But the where we conceptualize, where we operationalize the word is is that it's when really when nobody knows your name, and even worse, nobody cares. And to me, that speaks to the heart of men more than anything. And for me, I lived it out from, from like I said, from being recognized to being catered to walking in a Chick-fil-A and, and, and nobody knew. I mean, I'd walk around a grocery store in Dallas for hours and I wouldn't see a soul who knew me and I didn't see anybody who cared. And uh, so so that's where the word obscurity really became it for me. It became a tether so I could attach what I'd lived through. And that's where where I really felt that that word was important. And, and you know, we we talk about wilderness seasons, 
into you know in a spiritual sense. But really, that word obscurity is so obscure that I think that's the beauty of it. And, you know, even the flower, you'd mentioned the flower earlier, the little daisy. <laughs> you know, and really, you know, like what's more obscure than, than a little flower, a little weed growing in the grass? But what it shows is when you feel like your life's been buried, you've actually been planted. And in that season of obscurity, you're about to blossom and bloom into your new anointing. So, Scott, would you say obscurity is synonymous with a wilderness or a shadow of death valley of shadow death or a desert experience when you when you hear the word obscurity would you put those in that camp or are they is it somehow different than those things i think i think i think the wilderness season is an active process right obscurity is the is the the way you feel the the maybe the the suppression over your spirit you're feeling a sense of obscurity while you're moving through the active process of wilderness, because as you, I know you're a hunter and I grew up in the swamps of South Louisiana. When you're in the wilderness, if you, if you're, if you're sitting still, you become target. So the wilderness season to me is, is a very active, very progressive. It may not feel like it, but you're on the move. You're on the go. You're hunting, you're seeking, you're surviving. Um, you may feel obscure while you're covered in peat moss or while you're hiking the mountains. So that's the difference. It's obscurity is the feeling that maybe the suppression on your spirit while you're going through the wilderness season. That's interesting. So you talk about it's this feeling. So on page 14 of your book, you said, maybe it doesn't feel like God is actually doing anything in you. Mm-hmm. But really, you said, really, it may feel as though God has completely abandoned you but there cannot be transformation in you as long as you're holding on to the status quo. And so this is really interesting. Sometimes the truth is we can't do, God can't do anything new in us until he removes these strongholds in our lives and and that are chaining us down and tethering us down to this older version, lesser version of ourselves. So when you look at Moses, Jesus, Paul, David, Joseph, and and their seasons of obscurity. What do you see going on there? I see God at work. I mean, I see the from. I look at it from the man's perspective, and they're like, "Yeah, I've been thrown. I've been thrown in a hole. You know, somebody took my cool coat. Uh, you know, I've been. I've, I've escaped to Midian. Uh, you know, I just got baptized by John the Baptist, and, and God the Father says, This is my son. I'm proud.'" Paternal, fatherly affirmation, and boom. Then he's even he's whisked away. And what I see in all these examples are even Jesus is when we talk about that transformation season is, is that, you know, Jesus, all Jesus had been up to that point was a carpenter's son. Now he was ordained. He was always destined to be the Messiah, the Christ. But up to that point, and the only glimpse we get is when he's 12 in the temple, that this is a pretty wise kid. But other than that, we don't see anything, but we do know that he is a carpenter's son. So I've just, you know, my take on it is you don't really go from being a carpenter to the Messiah without a season in the wilderness. You don't go from from being the Israelites, being in captivity for 430 years to moving into the promised land. You you can't move from slave, from that slave mentality, strongholds, soul ties into a season of prosperity because you're just going to you're just going to squander it. So that's what each one of these uh, heroes. That's what I see that they've gone through. It's taking them from where they were, putting them in obscurity, uh, wilderness season, so they can prepare. Like I said, it's not punishment. It's preparation for promotion. So you, this is off script for me, but you just, you just inspired a thought. 
So Jesus spent 30 years of his life as a carpenter and then was baptized and anointed and the dove descended and and God uh, you know, spoke. And then he was released in the wilderness for 40 days. You know, Moses was trained in the Pharaoh's court and then went into the wilderness. So he had a 40-year and another 40-year. Do you think that our lives oftentimes have these meta experiences of obscurity, these long extended periods, maybe an entire working career, and then these micro uh, times of obscurity, which may last a year or or less? Do you think that there's a meta and micro component here? What what do you think? I think that it's, I think because it's cyclical, that that it depends. Ah, I always hate to say it depends, right? But it depends. I mean, my strongholds were over the course of fifty years. My my wounds went back from childhood. Uh, my identity was so deeply rooted. My soul ties were so ironclad that it took just getting a snot beat out of me <laughs> through through my season. Um, other people may come to that realization quicker than others. I, I really do. I think it's, I think there's variables that are involved. And, uh, and I also think it's, it's what your level of promotion is, right? I mean, not every, not every level up from glory to glory, not every level up requires this, this just 40 year season, right? Some of them may take just, just going from associate pastor to senior pastor. And, and it's just preparing that, you know, your, your new wine skin for new wine. So, I hate to say it depends, but I really, I think it depends on what you're. Well, I think you're, I, yeah. Well, I think you're absolutely right as I process this with you. And I think if we look at this as cyclical or helical, ho- hopefully the seasons of obscurity get shorter and shorter as we grow in our relationship with Jesus and our personal integrity. You would hope that at 80 years old, we're not going through this long season of obscurity. You think we have figured it out by then, right? Right. Yeah. You know, I love what you said and amen to that. Cause that's what I'm believing in, right. Is we're going to go. And even Adam talks about that, you know, I mean, his seasons have shortened because you are, you're, you're, you're more mature in the faith. You learn to understand the calling. Now it's not such a mysterious voice. Like, really God is this really you, you're very sensitive to the Holy Spirit's prompting and then I, I really the less you the less you resist the quicker you go through the process and so I do believe that that the level of maturity spiritual maturation would have an effect on that because obviously what the whole process or a part of it is breaking these strongholds breaking the chains that keep you trapped to who you were while God's trying to make you new who you are so I'm going to believe no, that's really powerful. Said, I believe you. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, buddy. Listen, listen. We are the same age. It better be true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time for this stuff, man. I'm running out of time. So, you know, you said that, you know, it's interesting because you said just said the less you resist, the faster God can do what God does. And it's really interesting to me. It, it seems to me that as as life plays out, that God will oftentimes allow or thrust. I, you know, I, I, I got to be careful how I do this. I want to get theologically uh, divisive here. But God allows or thrusts situations into our lives that we were not ready for. We did not ask for. We did not expect. They were painful. Uh, a child dying. We just had a guy on our arena page. His daughter just died of brain cancer at 16 years old. Or a loss of a, uh, a job. Uh, or uh, somebody who deeply wounded us. So when these situations come upon us that we did not ask or invite into our lives, what's the proper way to handle that? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I referenced earlier is is that there's two things, I believe. Romans 8, 28, you know, for those yes. who love God, God uses all things for good. But a lot of people misinterpret that. And it's like, well, that ain't good. Cancer's not good. Unemployment's not good. God didn't say that all things are good, but he'll use all things for good. And then I rest on the, on the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, for, for I have plans, for I know the plans I have for you, not to hurt you, not to forsake you, but to prosper you, give you promise and hope. And when you can light, when you can lean on those things, that now you can dig all the theology you want to, but that's where I've always put my hope in, in the reality that, hey, look, we've, we've got to put on our big boy pants. We've got to understand that sometimes life stinks and good things, bad things happen to good people. Conversely, good things happen to bad people, but that's not our problem because we're good people. So it is, it's coming to that understanding uh, of, of losing that entitlement mentality that offended, like everybody's offended nowadays. I'm offended that I lost my job. You know what? That's life, but it, God's still on the throne. And if you're faithful and you will see the purpose, he's going to use that loss of job. He's going to use these things for good. And, and it may not be good, but he'll use it for good. And, and I just do. I really think that we get mired in in this entitlement mentality uh, like that. You know, like I love that there's a book I, read, I forgot who wrote. It. It's called Unoffendable. And uh, and it's just and it really walks you through the whole process of it's like, really, who are we to be so arrogant that everything offends us? You know, I mean, you know, look, I, I mean, I know God's in control. And when you come to that realization and that he's going to bless you, he's going to promise, you know, he's got plans for you, then then, you know, drop the offense and give grace and give mercy and forgive and learn to live within the flow of the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, you, you quoted, first of all, I agree 100%. And Romans eight twenty eight. I love to say that God will turn your mess into your message. Yeah. Oh, he did good. it with Joseph. He did it with Paul. He did it with Moses. He does it with us. And then you quoted Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans that not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you hope in a future. But what we have to do is we have to sync that up with 2913 that says, you will seek me and find me when you search with me with all your heart. That's and right. so this is the problem that you brought up in your book, that when we're in this season of obscurity, we don't feel God. Hmm. Why is it? Let's go back to your story. How did your obscurity force you to seek God even more diligently than before, even though you weren't feeling him and experiencing the success you had in your earlier phase of life? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You know, I just and I, I look and I was a, I was a believer. I was a Christian. But yeah, I was also I've been very successful. I put myself through a master's degree, through a Ph.D., uh, you know, work my way up from a from a deputy in a small town sheriff's office to a commander in a nationally accredited agency, um, working undercover with the DEA, become a chief of police. So I was used to working my way out of messes. You know, I'd, I'd mess things up. I'd fix them. Um, actually, what I was doing was more more medication placating them. But but when I came into that season of obscurity where God removed my resources, right? He took away my, my shield and my sword and my helmet. And then I had to rely on him. And all he had was a, all he had was a sling and a rock. And that's when I had to rely on him. <laughs> and I believe that's where God's got to get us to that point where, where David said, Hey, Saul, I appreciate it, bro. But, but this ain't my armor. You know, I believe that a lot of us would not throw Saul's armor off. I think we do. We go into battle 
with a helmet we can't see, a shield we can't carry, and and a sword that's probably dull. And and this obscurity forces us, no matter how hard-headed we are, to take that armor off and pick up what God's given you and then depend on him. Because look, that's where it got to me. I mean, I'd always work myself out of a fix. And my work was meticulous. My life was a mess. But I was always able to, to come out on top. No matter what it costs other people, I was coming out on top. And when it got to the point where I was rock bottom and there was nobody, there was really nobody below me, nobody to help me, that's when I'm like, God, I'm yours. You know, I got nothing left. And um, I think that's the difference. I think that's where men, sometimes we've got to be. Well, hey, guys, if you're listening to this right now, you know, 2020 has been tough. And maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've lost your marriage. And guy, listen, if you're listening to this right now and what Scott said about hitting rock bottom is resonating with you, I want to encourage you right where you are, pull over your car and just ask God to show you the next step. Because when you are at the rock bottom, that is when you are setting yourself up for a miracle but you need to acknowledge it and let God do what God is going to do. You know, the sad thing here is, Scott, is uh, not everybody will uh, choose the right path. And so you you said something really powerful in your book. I want to read this quote to you, and I just want you to respond to me, okay? So you said this, not everyone will choose to cross the bridge of obscurity. Obscurity is not punishment, which you've said earlier in the podcast. It is a gift-giving process. Part of the process requires faithful action on your part. That action involves crossing that once completed can never return you to the person that you were prior to the action. Can you walk us through the process there, that thought? Sure. You know, and, and I'll tell you, my, my PhD is in cultural anthropology. And, and one of my heroes, and we have heroes in, in anthropology, is a man named Victor. <laughs> I know it's weird. You know, my wife's like, you, yeah. you really are a nerd. And I'm like, no. But, but it's, a, it's a process called um, liminality. And what it is, it's, it's when you go through these thresholds in life. That, and the example I, I give to explain it is when you accept Christ. And, and you, know, you, you may go back and sin. Uh, you may return. You may backslide. But you can never, ever completely go back to who you once were once you've accepted Christ. Uh, maybe a more uh, tangible or different example is, you know, once you've been married and then you divorce, well, you know what? You may not be married, but you'll never be single again. You know, you'll always have experienced that experience of being married. So that's that's the process is, is you know, when you come to these bridges and there's different bridges uh, and we talk about uh, this one in this book, but you've got a choice to make. And, you know, and if like for me, like I tell you, when about the first couple months after I retired, and I thought, man, we're going to we're going to live this golden year lifestyle and this and that. And, and we were we were traveling. And but the depression, the despair, the anxiety. And I was trying to plot ways to get my job back. And because I wasn't willing to cross that bridge because I saw so what I did. I sat down right at the foot of it and I'm like, well, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to sit as close to who I used to be as I possibly can. But you know what? That doesn't mean you are who you were. And it also means you're never going to be who God wants you to be. You've just staked out a piece of neutral ground and you've got to cross that bridge. And it is an actionable item, right? I mean, even Moses had to strike the rock, uh, lift the staff. And so we there is a, a reciprocating responsibility on our part. And for men, 
I think that's where we really could dig into this. It's not like we just, you know, we're, we're passive recipients of, of this whole process. God's like, bro, dig in, put on your armor, get ready for battle and move forward. And, and that's where, what really spoke to me in the process was it is a challenge. It is a man, you know, it's a manly challenge to, to, to fix yourself and become a better man. But, but you know what, if you choose to just sit at the foot of the bridge, you'll become, you'll become a fixture at the foot of the bridge. You'll never come into that realization of transformation. Actually, I'm pretty sure, uh, Scott, that when you sit at the foot of a bridge, that makes you a troll. troll. I, I, know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, buddy, get off, get off your butt and do something. Well, you know, I love the, I love the quote, you know, you said rock bottom. I, I love the saying, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. And yeah. so I would say, start swinging yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. while you're hanging on, but there's a, there's a beauty and this is what guys don't realize. There's a beauty in being at the bottom at rock bottom. There's a beauty at being at the end of your rope. Because your options are wearing thin. And if God if God wants to move you, which I know he does, into your best version, we have to make a decision. And so you said here, and this is, and here's why. I want to move into the why of this obscurity season, which we talked about it. You know, we had calling and our four uh, le- our four letters in our acrostic, calling, obscurity, stabilize, transformation. You, you mentioned it a little bit, but let's dive into the deep waters of what really is going on here. You said this, if we do not embrace the season of obscurity, we will not be prepared for our season of influence. Mm. Now, that is really, really powerful because God doesn't walk us through pain and through this season of obscurity when we may not be feeling him, life has fallen apart. He doesn't walk us through that because he's a killjoy and he wants to hurt us. He's walking us through it because Romans 8, 28 says, for God works all things for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So so will you talk to us about your experience in this season of influence? Yeah, that, that's that's a very great distinction. And, you know, I tell you, it's how you look at influence. When I looked at the influence I had from a worldly view, I had complete influence, right? Um, social media influence as a chief of police influence. I sat on policy boards for influencing law enforcement into the into the future, a law enforcement reform. And, and when I when I spoke, people listened. And I thought that was that was true influence. Actually, what it was was I basically had a bully pulpit, right? Because I was the chief. Oh, so oh, yeah. When I stepped away from that, my message did not change. My heart didn't change. My heart for service, my heart for justice, my heart for for equality did not change. But I didn't have the platform that I once had. Therefore, and also didn't have the audience I had. So I really thought that I lost the influence because my circle shrunk. And and I and I I can think you're thinking. Look at Jesus' circle, right? I mean, you know, and that's the example that that was put on my heart as well. And then when, and you know, I'm thinking, God, you called me in the ministry. I mean, shouldn't I be at like a mega church? Like, shouldn't I be on stage and, and wearing skinny jeans and a flannel shirt? And, and, and no, 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 not at all. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's what, while I'm going through, through stabilization before transformation, that was my impression, right? You called me in a ministry. Well, that means I've got to get a job as a pastor. You know, that means I've got to yeah. dress the dress and look the part. And I'm going to tell you, we used to go to, to one of the third, I think it's the third largest church in America. It's an incredible, incredible, you know, church, a mega church. And I thought, 
well, I want to regain influence. So you've got to go to the influential church. And I applied for a men's ministry position. And I'm like, I'm a man. And I called a ministry. And the guy looks at me and he's like, I read your resume and I know you personally. And you don't fit in here. And I'm going to tell you what, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. But that was during the stabilization. When I came to transformation, I realized, wow, you're right. God didn't call me out to fit me in. You know, and and so many times, men, ministers, if you don't have that name tag that says pastor so-and-so, you're not really ministering to people. And uh, and that's where I realized that's where true spiritual influence comes from, is day-to-day, one-on-one discipleship training. And uh, so that's that's been the difference, where I realized it doesn't matter the size of your platform. When your platform diminishes, the circle, the people your audience, it doesn't mean your message is less important. It just means God wants you to pour in to to the people that he brings into your life. Well, let's be honest. When you look at scripture and I, I, I read the Jesus story, which is a blended version of the gospels. I go through that about 10 times a year and Jesus in year one of ministry, two of ministry, three of ministry, he was always pruning the crowds. So Jesus would have never been a mega church guy. He was always pruning the crowds to start with his 12. But so when I said no to you earlier, I want to have a clarification, man. I was saying no to the skinny jeans. I know. Because I know. you could, the flannel's cool. But so here's the deal. Here's the deal, man. In the 80s, we all, had, you know, I didn't, but the mullet was a the mullet was one of those things we did in the 80s that we all regret. <laughs> uh, the skinny jeans is the thing we're going to regret. But yeah. you said something. I want you to walk <laughs> us through this. You said he did not call you to for you to fit in. And so I'm going to change that. He's not going to call you out to fit in. He's going to call you out to call you up. And isn't yeah. that what the season of influence is? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, and it's just, it's just shifting your perspective, you know, where, where I thought, you know, look, why, like God, why, okay, you called me out and now you've got me on the outskirts of where the traditional influencing goes, but that's not where he needed me to be, right? He needed me to elevate my game, to understand that to influence up uh, would mean to like, for me to, to start mentoring other men and, and through di- discipleship, just like, just like you do. And, and cause that's where, that's where the heart of men's ministry is, right? It's not, it's not, you know what we have, you know, a social media platform now that's grown through the years and, and, but that's not where the, where the heart of men's ministry is. It is talking one-on-one texting, sitting around a fire pit. And, and that's really the up influence. It's not the size of your congregational audience, it's it's the influence you can have on on one person at a time. Well, you know, so Scott, I'm going to hit you with one last question here. We live in a world, you talked about social media influence. We live in a world that we thrive on thumbs. Just got just click that thumb, right? Just click that follow. Just build that following. And you know, we're we're a part of that, right? We want to have a bigger following, a bigger so- social media influence. The problem with that is it talks to a get famous, get popular now type of thing. How does that run countercultural with how God functions in scripture and in real life with obscurity? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's, I tackle, I try to tackle that from the, from the academic side uh, as a cultural anthropologist, because it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? You want to, if you're on social media, you want to, you want to positively influence uh, but at the same time, you have to be careful not to become the star. And I love that. As it told yes. me, Mac, you know, said, if, if you want to steal my show, 
and uh, I'll sit back and watch you. And, and, you know, and we see that, I mean, we're seeing, you know, not change top, but we see pastors just recently that have, that have become megastars and then they fall in drastically and, and that ruins the witness for everybody. And so going through that season of obscurity, I know for me personally, helped me to, gave me a level of humility where it's not important who I am. It's only important whose I am. And it wasn't until I went through that obscurity to understand. I mean, if you'd have asked me, look, my first six months, I would say after retirement, like I go through the, I always mention Chick-fil-A because it's, it's Jesus chicken, you know, and I love it. We didn't have it back in Louisiana. <laughs> and, um, but you know, when I would go through a drive-through, I mean, I was always like, Oh, you know, when I was a chief of police, uh, we'd wear a uniform and get 50%. I was always having to qualify who I was instead of like, you know, I'm a son of God, but I didn't see my, I didn't understand that distinction. Going through that season of obscurity made me realize that I don't need a big social media following, that I need to focus on the man standing in front of me. And really, to be honest with you, the little men standing in front of me, we have three young sons. You know, if we're going to minister, let's minister to, to the to the young, the men to be in our lives. And then once I learned that, then God started bringing uh, other men into my life. But you know what he did for me is uh, my I, my dad, a horrible relationship with my dad. My dad never uh, you know, said, I love you, was never nice. So I was like Moses when I when I was going off without that until he found until Jethro affirmed his ministry. And several years ago, I prayed for 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 a spiritual father and God brought a man named Larry Titus into my life. And, and just that relationship uh, kind of helped heal that wound. But what it did was it modeled uh, what the way God wanted me to to treat other men was not a buddy, not a padna, not a peer, but as a spiritual father, as someone who can affirm other men. And so we can activate their anointing. And so as you're saying that, as I'm talking, uh, the Holy Spirit just really put on my heart was, I see that when you're talking about uh, obscurity and, and big followings, is it's really not our job to collect people to like our page, right? They'll come organically or paid. It's our job to activate those men, affirm their anointing, and then send them out, which is a true apostolic model. And we can do that on social media as well. That's really powerful, man. I, I'll tell you what, I'm really enjoying this discussion because I've never heard an author talk about obscurity. So I'm really intrigued by this. A lot of this stuff, I'm scratching my own itch, right? So you talked about Larry Titus. You talk, So thank you, Larry, for being that man. Talked about Jethro. And then you said, <clears throat> it's about who I, it's not about who I am. It's whose I am. And then you linked that word to the word humility. C.S. Lewis said, my favorite quote is, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. So how does knowing whose you are impact understanding who you are? And that's that's such a good, it's such a tough question. Thank you. <laughs> I know, that's why I'm asking no, you to okay, answer it. it. Well, you know, it, it is until you really come into that understanding that like, it doesn't matter that you were a supervisor. It doesn't matter that you were a pro athlete. It doesn't matter that you were chief of police. It doesn't matter that you were elected official, right? It doesn't matter. It All that matters is whose you are. And when you come into that understanding, when you truly put that, that what is that, I am second, when you can really accept, yes. adopt, and live out the life that I am second, then it really does. It helps you like we, you know, I said earlier, a lot of people think peace means absence of chaos, but it really doesn't. It's having that peace even in the midst of chaos that is peaceful. And when you come to that realization that I am God's, 
that this isn't up to me. You know, we're, we're almost bankrupt. God, I know, but you're, you're God's and God loves you. You know, uh, we're almost divorced. Listen, this is for God to work out. Why? Because he loves you. And, and once you realize that God is a good father, and what does he say? You don't ask for a fish and he's going to give you a snake. He loves you. And that's where men really need to understand. As soon as you're willing to break off that facade of, of you know, because I did the same thing. If you would have talked to me three, four, five years ago, hey, Scott, hey, 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 you know, I'm chief of police, you know, call me chief or PhD. Cut that stuff and get to the heart of who it is. And, and all we're doing is wearing an old nasty Band-Aid over the wounds that over our heart. And like you said, it's weird for a SWAT cop to, you know, I mean, look, I, I'm an alpha male and I don't I don't apologize for it. I'm thankful that God made me an alpha male, but he also gave me, I, I believe in that first Corinthians 16, 13, 14, that is my marching orders and that everything I do, I do in love. And there's nothing wrong with being strong and standing on guard and acting like a man, but everything I do, I now do in love. And when you realize that you're his, you can be that alpha male and do it all in love. Well, John Eldridge, yeah. one of my favorite quotes from John Eldridge is, let the world feel the full weight of who I am and let them deal with it. So it's really interesting. It's really interesting, Scott. You and I have never spoken live before, and I've read your, uh, I've read your uh, bio. I've seen that you've written 45 books. I see all the things you've done, and I was really uh, impressed with your humility and am impressed with your humility. And it makes me realize that the world can't feel the whole weight of who I am if I'm in a bully pulpit or if I'm arrogant, they feel the full weight of who I am, just as they felt the whole, full weight of who Jesus was when we are humble and we serve. And so thanks for coming on this show. I just want to highlight what I learned today. First of all, when there's when we're moving into it, there's a call of God. That call may be through, uh, through the removal of a desire or the, the uh, uh, giving of a desire. I will move into a season of obscurity. That obscurity season can last a month. It can last 10, 20, 30 years. My, my season of obscurity was 23 years of youth ministry. So for 23 years of youth ministry, I didn't realize I was in a season until God called me up to the next season. So obscurity season, the third is stabilization, and the fourth is transformation. And I want to close with this question. You're calling it transformation, but the, you've said something three different times in this interview and I, I want you to just tell me if this is the same as transformation. When you talk about activating and anointing, that God takes us through this season to activate and anointing, is that the same as transformation or are those somehow activating different? your anointing is the, that's the purpose of your wilderness season. Because if there was no anointing to be activated, then God's not going to call you. God's not going to put you to obscurity. He's not even going to bother stabilizing you. And then there, obviously there'll be no transformation. So, there, if, like you said, a lot of times people think they're called and they've not been called, you know, so that anointing, that yeah. anointing, that activation of anointing will not happen until there's been a, a, a season of cost like we used. So there, there is a distinction in that. It's, it's when it's like, hey, you're going, you know, you're going to be the quarterback, right? OK, that's great. That's your, your anointing, your calling. And now we're going to send you to camp. We're going to teach you how to throw a forward pass and, and not get sacked. And then we're going to put you in the huddle. So that's that's the distinction between that, the activation of your anointing. And, um, and you know, and look, I mean, you know, just like the wilderness season, just like you're receiving your anointing, you don't have to accept it. I mean, who was more reluctant than Saul? I mean, Saul, you know, I mean, the guy, the guy lost his mark because he wouldn't accept his, his anointing. Um, 
So you don't have to take yeah. it. Just like, I mean, it all goes back to free will. And, you know, you don't have to cross the bridge of obscurity. You don't have to enter. You don't have to accept the calling. Look, I could still be sitting behind a desk in South Louisiana with a chief's badge on my chest had I not died from a, from a heart attack or a bullet in my head. You know, but I chose to accept the calling. And this is the beauty of yeah. it. This is the reward for obedience. Well, when you go through the process, God activates the anointing and you walk into Big a season time. of influence which is the beauty of obscurity. And so, guys, if you're listening to this right now and you're saying, man, I think I'm in this season, guys, that's a great place to be. Be faithful, stay true, seek God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know, Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All this will be given to you as well. So, uh, guys, I got to tell you, go get this book. It's a great book. Don't be thrown off by the daisy cover. This is a good book. It's a man book. You will really enjoy this book. Uh, it It's opened up my eyes to some things. And actually, uh, Scott, it's caused me to invite God into my life and to bring with him those seasons of obscurity because I know I'll be a better man for it. And so, guys, what's next? Let's get our boots on the ground. Here's what I want you to do. This is going to be the easiest thing you've ever done. This is going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. Just pull over wherever you are right now, put your blinker on, smog, over signal mirror over the shoulder, go. We got a police chief here listening. Get on the side of the road and ask God to show you what season you're in. And if if you're in a season of obscurity, I want you to embrace that and let God make you the man he's called you to be so he can activate your anointing, move you into a season of influence, and realize, guys, it may be in a week, it may be in a decade. But be patient with what God wants to do in your life because he's got something awesome on the other end. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for coming on, man. We sure appreciate you, your wisdom, and uh, your heart. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Hey, Dale, you want to drive us home? Yeah, guys, we want you to head on over to minintherena.org and get your free copy of the field guide. And that's going to be for a very limited time. So you want to do that right away. We'd also ask that you leave us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you can't figure out how to do that, we would love for you to just to shoot us an email at info at minintherena.org. We'd love for you to send us your hero stories as well and to hear how God is working in your life. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out and be an obscure man. Men in the Arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.